This is Cody Cast, the Care of the Elderly podcast for debate, discussion and analysis of issues related to geriatric and general medicine. Um, my name is Mark Garside and with me on this Cody Cast are my fellow elderly medicine registrars, Andrew Dean. Hello, everyone. James Fisher. Good evening. And down the line by the magic of the internet, uh, Dr. Philip Brody. Hello. So we are going to kick off with an opening question, but before we do that, I'm just going to throw out uh, an appeal for any listeners. Uh, this is our ninth episode now, and we know that there are a few of you downloading this and listening to it. So thank you very much. It makes us feel nice and warm and fuzzy inside, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, but we haven't had much in the way of formal feedback, and what we really want to try and get a feel of is whether or not people uh, find what we're talking about useful, uh, and whether there's any way we could refine the podcast to make it more useful for our listenership. So with that in mind, this is just an appeal um, to fill out our brief online survey that we've created so if all our listeners could go to aeme.org.uk slash survey and fill out um, a few questions for us uh, it'll only take a couple of minutes of your time that would be very much appreciated thank you so we'll move right on and uh, get on with our opening icebreaker question which for this episode is what is your favorite medical tv theme tune and to answer this first, I'm going to go to Andrew Dean. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad I had a bit of time to think about this. Um, but the one that uh, I think is iconic in my uh, younger days is Shortland Street from New Zealand. I don't know whether people have ever heard that one. Um, the words have absolutely nothing to do with medicine. Um, and some of the sentences don't make sense, but it's absolutely glorious. Um, and so it's one you can look up on YouTube, uh, which I might be putting on Twitter later on. Um can you give us an example of some of the lyrics? Um, well, is it you or is it me? Uh, lately I've been lost, it seems. I think a change is what I need. If I'm looking for a chance or to dream, Shortland Street. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's inspirational, isn't it? Really? Yeah, and if you want to find a way of searching for another world, it's hard to see. Shortland Street <laughs> is how it finishes. Um, it's quite thought-provoking. Um, it is quite thought through. You know, what would be even even more inspirational though is for you to sing it for us because obviously copyright issues, we can't play it. To the, well, I could uh, I could verses. sing the other the other verse that I've not actually um, said for you. Um, okay, <laughs> that's not that'd be a very cruel way to introduce a new guest to the show. But <laughs> sing that would be mean. Um, I'll put it on YouTube. Um, I'll put the YouTube link on Twitter. I don't want to ruin it. It's very okay, good. So before our audience quickly turns off, um, <laughs> uh, we'll move to to Philip Brody as our other. Um, First uh, participant on Cody Gas. Philip, what were your thoughts on uh, Best Medical Theme Song? Best Medical Theme Song. I think I had to go round it and pick something with a doctor in it. And of course, that's got to be Doctor Who. I'm quite obsessed with, uh, with, with the series. And so it's got to be the Series 7 Matt, Se- uh, Matt Smith uh, series. And the theme tune to that is probably my favourite medical theme tune, if I can pick a Doctor-related <laughs> yeah. series. You, you, can't, you can't see it, but Mark's got his head in his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my answer's stolen from me. Um, yeah, as a Doctor Who fan myself, of course you can have that as your answer. Absolutely great choice. Um, James? Okay, so mine's a little bit different. Um, you'll all know the Casualty theme tune, and obviously that would be very, very contrived to, to pick that. I've instead gone for the... 2000 remix of the casualty <laughs> theme tune by the well-known um, garage band duo Oxide Neutrino. It was called Bound for Da Reload, open bracket casualty, close bracket casualty. <laughs> and it was a song that featured a sample of casualty and and it also featured a sample taken from Lockstock. Um, and I can't quite quote it fully because it's graphic, but part of the quote says, Ow, I've been shot. Will everybody please stop getting shot? And it repeats that serially throughout the song. And it just seems like the most ridiculous comment to say. I think that plus the casualty tune just really it makes it a real gem of, of uh, 
2000 uh, garage music. How on so, earth did you come across that? Um, I don't really know. I think uh, no, I don't know. I don't know, but I did. I, I haven't just done an obtuse search for that. I did actually know that song, and um, I'll put the link up just so you can laugh at how cringy it is. Um, but for what they've done to the casualty uh, theme tune, that's my my favourite. Okay, well, mine's going to be a throwback to my uh, student days on the rare occasion when uh, I wasn't in lectures, obviously. And uh, you did have a chance to watch a bit of daytime TV. It was always Diagnosis Murder, and what a theme tune Diagnosis Murder has! If if an awful title for a show. Because for any juniors listening, murder, not a natural diagnosis. It's like, it's like putting heart failure on a death certificate. It's just... which, which year is your favourite? You know, they changed it every year. The diagnosis murder theme sheet they did. Oh. Oh. That was counted as revision in my day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the best medical TV theme tunes. Um, but we're actually here today uh, to talk about uh, perioperative care of uh, older patients. And this is uh, an emerging area in the field of, of geriatrics. And uh, we're fortunate that two of our guests here, uh, Andrew and Philip, have uh, more experience than myself and James. So we're hoping to, to pick your brains, learn a little bit about it ourselves and try and find out what sort of things that we can share with, with our listeners. Um, uh, we're looking for sort of practical tips and guidance, really, um, for junior doctors looking after older patients on the surgical wards. So, I mean, the first thing I think we need to, to start from is, is trying to find out what it is and define it. So, um, Philip, if I asked you, or if one of your junior colleagues asked you, what is, what is POPs, um, what would you say? Sure. So um, POPs stands for Proactive Care of Older People Undergoing Surgery. Um, and it originated about 10 years ago um, at Guy's and St. Thomas's. Um, and it, there's a lot of different units doing different ways of, of, of this type of model. I think when we look at it and looking at the syllabus, so it now appears in the geriatric syllabus under uh, perioperative medicine for old people, I think we have to think about why this specialty is starting to originate. And what we know, of course, is there are more older people in the UK and more of those people seem to be undergoing surgery through technological innovation and uh, more access to surgery. But what we know is that older people are more likely to get complications and those complications are, are generally medical and that rather than surgical. So surgical complications seem to be the same no matter what age people are. But actually, unsurprisingly, I'm sure to this audience, that older people are more likely to get pneumonia or a heart attack after an operation. So really the process of trying to look at older people and apply geriatrics to um, uh, surgical patients, not just medical patients, really is how POPs works. I mean, we, we did a, a podcast a couple of episodes ago um, speaking about author geriatrics, and that's something that's been uh, established for a lot longer in this country. Um, how did how did POPs come about? Was it that, that people took the author geriatric model and decided it would be a, a good idea for more surgical patients and expand it? Or um, was there evidence that came about from, from somewhere else? Yeah, I think I think the the orthogeriatric model has been around for a long time, but actually the, the model that we're probably being trained in as geriatric trainees, and you'll see in hospitals, is relatively new with the National Hip Fracture Database. But what we know overall about all older people in operations is that, as I said already, that they are going to do worse after an operation, and this is probably the same as the ortho, as patients um, in orthogeriatrics that they are older. They're frailer and they have multimorbidity. And we also know that the pathways of care uh, are don't really acknowledge older people. It's more set up for younger people. So if you go to a pre-assessment clinic, it's very much run by pre-assessment nurses looking for a, a, a specific problem and to see if someone is fit for an operation. 
And really, if any problems arise, they can't really deal with that. And patients get referred off to either their GP or single organ specialists in order to be optimized before an operation. And those people really aren't, haven't had very much perioperative medicine training. And I think that's probably the similar in orthogeriatrics where the people looking after frail older people with multi morbidity were surgeons and anaesthetists who may have limited training in older people. And I think it's that recognition that actually you need specific geriatric medical skills to look after this population. So I think Ian Wilkinson in his talk was talking very much about um, that uh, really def- trying to define orthogeriatrics as frail older people that have had a broken hip. And I think that's probably the same as the rest of surgeries, really. It's frail older people who are undergoing operations. Uh, they're the same patients that appear on the medical wards, but these ta- this time there's the overlay of surgery. Andrew, you've just been appointed to your first consultant post. Congratulations. Thank you. And, and you, you have an interest yourself or trying to grow an interest in um, uh, this area of surgical care of older patients. Um, what was it about it that floated your boat? I think it's similar to orthogeriatrics, as, as Philip said, that we can take what we've learned from our general medical geriatric training and take it to the surgical world and make a significant difference. So the impact of orthogeriatrics on morbidity and mortality and outcomes in orthopedic patients has been significant. And I think the same uh, outcome improvement can be seen in general surgical patients, um, but within that different specialties react differently so vascular patients are particularly at risk and i'm sure we'll get onto that later on but um what excited me i think actually why i went into geriatrics in the first place um was the surgical patients becoming unwell on the medical from medical point of view and that actually got me into cmt and ultimately geriatrics and so the idea of as a new consultant starting up a new service it's very exciting and so i think Within the POPs world, it's quite exciting the new innovations of, and, diff, and applying what we've learned from orthogerics and, and what we've learned in London at the POPs and then trying to take that to other hospitals is very exciting. I think that's right, Andrew. I think the take, taking that medical and geriatric knowledge that we have already learned as, as trainees and as consultants mm-hmm. is and applying that to a different population. It's a vulnerable population that whether you see in the medical wards in the community, in stroke, there are lots of different areas that geriatrics is working. And actually, this is the next group, which is the same patients again, mm-hmm. but it's applying that, those skills that we've already learned in other areas to this population. James and I, um, speaking as general uh, geriatrician uh, registrars and medical registrars and having come up through core medical training and so on, um, we have, as I'm sure you have, been asked to see patients on the surgical ward with their medical problems, maybe more in a, a reactive uh, capacity rather than a proactive capacity. Um, but there'll be lots of, of medics or, or buddy medics out there that will have seen unwell, uh, medically unwell patients on the surgical ward and, and gone in to help. Is that what is that what you do or, or is POP something else? Um, it's, it's, it's sort of multifaceted. So there's, I think the orthogeriatric model and how medical registrars or geriatric registrars are being called to the ward is very much the emergency side. If I can sort of take you through a rough pathway and then you might become a bit clearer. If, if patients are identified either in pre-assessment or by the surgeon as someone who looks maybe that they're not going to cope very well with an operation or there's a question about their medical problems with the surgical overlay, actually they can be referred into a comprehensive geriatric assessment clinic where they have the, uh, 
a full workup exactly like might happen in a usual geriatric clinic. So look at their medical problems, medications, as well as their social background and see if you can optimize those areas. So it might be treating anemia or finding a particular murmur which may or may not be relevant and stating that it may or may not be relevant. Plus, if you know someone's going to have the inevitable functional decline after an operation, you can plan for that and it would be setting up packages of care or making someone's home situation ready as well as talking to carers and family at the same time. So there's an optimization side and then informing the ward, the surgeon, the anaesthetist and everyone of that plan. So there's a coordination of care throughout the whole pathway. So when a patient actually comes in for an elective procedure, there's a plan already. And I think that that's probably missing in a lot of hospitals, that coordinated care and trying to make sure that things don't interact with an operation which can cause cancellations and predictable complications. I think the other side is the emergency side, which is a bit more of what you may see in a general hospital when your medical registrar or geriatric registrar gets called. And in the POPs model, not only do you follow the elective patients through, there are different methods of finding those emergency patients who are at risk of complications. And that proactive, as you, as you just mentioned, Mark, versus reactive side is key. So we, in generally, the medical registrar is called in a reactive nature. A disaster has occurred, and the surgical team have realized this, and they need help. And I think as a medical registrar, one of the key things I'd like to get across is to say, actually, when a surgical team calls for help, they do that is to support them in that situation. Um, as medics, we have limited um, surgical knowledge, and surgeons may have limited medical knowledge. And I think working together is really important. Yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there, really, with a, with a proactive comment. I mean, I'm, we've all been there at four in the morning, called to a catastrophe on the ward, and, and, and as you as you make the point, that's not really the time to be implementing the, the, this. And I mean, the evidence-based way to practice is geriatric assessment, and, and your average med reg at four in the morning just simply can't implement that because he's one he or she is one person and not the multidisciplinary team so i think the proactive i think of the four letters in the acronym for me the proactive is really the uh, the nub of it really i think it's just the second comment about what's been said so far i think not only does the addition of a geriatrician and the multidisciplinary team in the surgical environment add lots of knowledge i think it also brings attitudes i think sometimes surgical environments i'm not going to say that they're they're ageist but there's probably some negative attitudes for a lack of understanding that can be addressed. I think from the point of view of someone who was a, a house officer in surgical land many years ago, I think having someone with that mindset coming onto the ward and showing you how it should be done is really, really powerful. And I think the people out there who are trying to encourage sort of the new generation of geriatricians, those kind of role models really, really make a difference. One of the things that uh, we wanted to do today on the, the podcast, as well as uh, promoting the, the concept of, of POPs and telling people about it and helping to spread the word, is to maybe try and get a few hints and tips for people working in services that don't have uh, an established POPs team. You know, So the, the junior doctors on the ward clerking their surgical patients in preoperatively um, if they're older and have uh, complexity or multimorbidity. What uh, do you think are, are some of the most important aspects of the job that you do that could be taken and implemented, if only on a, a small scale, by uh, junior doctors working in DGHs? Uh, Andrew? Um, I think, as you're saying, that there's a popular model in London and then other hospitals are recreating. So I think as a junior doctor, if you're starting on the surgical world, it's definitely important to find out what support is available in the ward. Um, so... If there's an established team and you're wanting extra help, it might they might even be involved in your induction in terms of 
teaching you the medical aspects of surgical patients. But I think if surgical juniors are wanting to know how to manage their um, complex, frail patients on a surgical ward, it's to try and take as much as they can learn from medical school and try and get hold of some geriatric models of care. So try and implement comprehensive geriatric assessment. Just remember that there's a whole lot to a medical patient. But if you were wanting to try and narrow it down to sort of simple sound bites, it's remember surgeons can look after the surgical side, but you're there as possibly the only doctor who's focusing on the medical aspects. So you might be the only one looking at the diabetes control, which is really, really important in surgical patients. Um, the blood pressure medications, making sure they don't get acute kidney injury, which of course there's massive problems as well. And you may be the only doctor that asks about bowels unless they've happened to have a laparotomy effect in the bowels. So just remember that you are a key member of the team. You're not there just to fill out forms for the, for the surgical hierarchy. So is, is it fair to say that even just uh, an awareness of all these potential medical problems and complications is a good start, even if you can't personally deal with them all on your own, you can at least recognise that there's potential uh, for something to be a problem and you can get the relevant team to come and help? Absolutely. And think... Even if there's not an official process to refer these patients to, there are always people who can help. Um, we don't want to burden the medical registrar, but the medical registrar is one port of call. But normally there should be geriatricians who would be more than happy to help. And also our physiotherapy, occupational therapists, speech and language team, nursing staff. We work in a massive team on surgical wards. It's no different to any other wards. Um, I think sometimes surgical juniors can feel, particularly when they start in August, that they're on their own with no support. And that's just not true. So if that's one of the myths that we can bust, that would be a really quite a good one to bust. I think it, uh, certainly reflecting on my own experiences, it feels quite a lonely place at times. At time, you, you do feel like you're left kind of piloting the medical ship when you, when you don't feel you necessarily have the expertise to do that. So I'd agree with everything you've said. I mean, just in terms of simple stuff, I just, I'm just reflecting then and uh, and apologies to any listeners who think this is sort of teaching them to, to suck eggs. But if you just maybe pause for a minute and think, what happens if, say, a, um, a family member had an operation and you were maybe helping them convalesce at home? What kind of things would you do for them? You'd probably make sure they were drinking lots of juice, drinks. You'd probably get meals for them so they're eating. You'd probably get them up and out of bed and give them things to stimulate them. And it seems like such simple, logical stuff. But sometimes when you put us in a hospital and put people in gowns and paint all the walls white and make it all look very clinical, sometimes we maybe lose sight of the simple stuff. And for me, geriatrics, a lot of it is doing the simple stuff well. So it's getting them out of bed early. It's getting them eating. It's getting them drinking. Um, and I think if you're, if you're a junior out there looking after frail, vulnerable patients who've had surgery, simple stuff like that does actually make a difference. It really does. I, I certainly uh, re- recognise the discussion about being a junior doctor in the wards. And certainly as an FY1 doing surgery, I was left in the position of doing lots of medical management to the frustration of my FY1 surgical colleagues because I was continuously playing with medications and fluids and and, and trying to understand what was going on. Um, I, I think that I, I would also agree that it, it, there is MDT working throughout the whole hospital. And I think as a junior doctor, recognising and including that MDT throughout the surgical pathway is really important. Um, I think there are probably bigger ways, actually, of of addressing um, the fact that many hospitals don't have a pop style working or don't have surgical liaison. And I think those ways are by starting to talk about this being a problem. So, for instance, going to audit meetings that the surgical team or anaesthetic team may be present and starting to 
talk about this as being a problem, that recognising that AKI is an issue or surgical juniors are being left alone and aren't getting support. Raising this issue at different levels means that this becomes more, more, more of a, uh, a, a recognised problem that then senior colleagues, whether that be anaesthetic, surgical, medical, geriatric teams, can start putting in these kind of models of care to provide a regular service. But I think without highlighting that there's actually a problem throughout the system, it's never really going to be addressed in, locally. Um, and there are continually going to be surgical audit meetings, departmental geriatric meetings, um, where this kind of discussion can happen regularly. And I think I'm sure at the end we'll talk about more resources and ways of learning um, and how to take this back to your local areas. But um, the kind of things that I think that I spotted as a junior doctor now having reflected what done differently are simple things like in the clerking doing an abbreviated mental test score, identifying someone that might have cognitive impairment and therefore at high risk of delirium. And delirium is so common after surgery. It's, you know, 50% of patients after having a bypass graft, 40% after a hip fracture, 30% after vascular surgery. So you're going to see lots of patients who are delirious. And I think I've come across as a junior doctor, now recognised as a registrar, so many patients that are delirious and were really mismanaged on the ward. Um, And actually uh, the the types of delirium teaching and and, um, interventions that happen on the geriatric wards really can be brought across, um, even by the most junior doctor um, to the surgical wards. That's probably, uh, those are the kind of things, an AMT, prescribing medications correctly, prescribing pain relief correctly, not overdosing, but prescribing the right amount to patients. Those are simple things which can make a big difference which are often ignored in a quick surgical clerking at three in the morning. Yeah, I think we've hit the nail on the head with delirium. Hit the nail on the head again there with delirium. It's, I mean, it's, it's ubiquitous, isn't it? It's, as you said, the stats there are shocking, really. And when you reflect on how we look after it in surgical land, it's, it's really not good enough. And I, I think part of it, again, comes back to attitudes. Um, I don't think people are deliberately bad at it. It's probably a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding of, uh, of what delirium is. And I, I think... Just again, sort of thinking of, of, of helpful tips for juniors. One thing that always sticks in my mind is when the nurses say, Oh, so and so in bed, so and so had a dreadful night, or oh, he was up and about, or oh, he was causing us all kinds of bother. That to me is just delirium until proven otherwise. And I think reshaping delirium from the patients being challenging or difficult to this is an emergency, something catastrophic happened, why on earth are they delirious? is quite a challenge. Um, particularly in a surgical environment, but, but I'd, I'd encourage anyone out there who's who's in working in surgical land and is a junior doctor to, to watch the mini gem that we've got on delirium. And it's a really short, sharp, focused um, introduction to spotting it, preventing it, and what, basically what you can do about it. And I think that's very applicable to the life of the surgical junior doctor. I think it's true if you're a geriatric registrar and you want to do more for surgical patients. I think taking that kind of knowledge direct to the surgical wards and seeing what's going on, how are patients being identified, let's say it's delirium you're focusing on, and how that's being treated regularly um, becomes a very interesting quality improvement project to try and bring the kind of things that may be happening in the rest of your hospital to the surgical wards. Mm-hmm. I think it's also really interesting to reflect on, on the experience for the patient with delirium. So quite often, if you and I often get juniors to do this on the ward, it's worth just pausing sometimes and just looking at the situation and invariably without really thinking we create situations where the stress levels of patients with delirium must be so high that it's probably fanning the flames of their delirium um, and often the fact that they're perceived as challenging and difficult patients means that people are maybe a little bit abrupt when they approach them and that can fan the flames as the patients become more anxious and I think again a tip for a junior doctor if, if you're dealing with someone in a surgical ward who's 
who's behaving really difficultly or challengingly, it's probably delirium. And just pause for a second and have a look at the situation and think, well, if I was sat in that chair and I was being restrained by a big burly security guard or someone gave me four milligrams of iron haloperidol or something horrendous, I think I'd probably be behaving somewhat similarly. So I think it's quite a useful exercise for people out there to do. Round's over. <laughs> um, one thing I'd like to get a feel of, and um, this is very personal to your experiences, uh, Andrew and Philip, because I think to over-extrapolate it would be a huge generalisation, but how have you found our surgical colleagues in terms of them being receptive to this initiative and having you on board? Okay, I think there's a perception in uh, some medical specialties that surgeons don't necessarily care about their patients as much as medical consultants and that's sometimes we do i think it's often oh they're under certain oh no that's a bad thing but my experience has definitely been a revelation that they are really passionate about the patient care and what i think is exciting about the pops movement is the surgeons want it because they care about their patients and they do care about their outcomes um and i hope geriatricians take that to, to heart and actually talk to their surgical colleagues if they haven't got a service because most surgeons if you if you talk to them will want to improve the outcomes of their older patients mm-hmm. and the surgeons they know they're not foolish they know that their patients are getting older and they're getting more complex and it's harder to get good outcomes and discharge them promptly and so they are actually in the hospitals that i've been around have actually been asking for a consultant geriatrician to be involved and it's not just this was happening before some of the nc pod reports which were basically saying a geriatrician should be involved um so my experience has been the surgeons are unanimously in favor of it they may not necessarily be in favor of everything a geriatrician does so they may not be in favor when the geriatrician says let's not discharge them just yet let's get a few things sorted before they go or no 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 let's not take them to rehab unit because they're not rehabbing yet um but they are very much in favor of getting us involved because they recognize that they haven't had the training to do so um so it's been overwhelmingly positive where i've been in the past couple years just to interject i think they do get a hard press, a tough press, surgeons. But I think sometimes they're, the fact they're not really around on the ward is because they're in theatre. And sometimes their lack of willingness to engage with the medical issues, I think, is interpreted as a lack of desire to. But I suspect it's just that they feel a bit uncomfortable. I mean, surgeons are bred to be kind of all-powering, all-knowing creatures. And to actually admit that they don't know something... It's probably quite a big deal for them. So I suspect the stock response is just to shy away from it. In the same way, if you gave me a gaping abdominal wound and told me to sort it out, I'd probably shy away from it and, and, and be a bit bashful. Mm. But uh, I think if you if you showed the stats for, for, for the POPs approach to surgeons, and, and, and I mean, I'm just looking at them now, some of the comparative percentages that was done in a study where they, one cohort was given input from the POPs team and one was given routine care. I mean, there's a, there's a gaping chasm between the rates of pneumonia and pressure sores and there's a ginormous difference between the discharge and the length of stay. If you show any surgeon that, they'll bite your hand off. They'll bite your hand off, I would imagine. I don't know what your experience of uh, our surgical friends has been, Philip. I'm certainly very positive. Um, I think it's difficult when you're a uh, a lone medical registrar turning up to the ward after a night shift and you then have to interact with the surgical team. It's not going to go well because <laughs> you've been called at the wrong time and the only discussion is going to be negative. 
Um, and I think that's not the time to get to know surgical colleagues. Um, <laughs> surgeons are in the hospital and anaesthetists and the rest of the MDT are in the hospital all the time doing their job. And the nature of the job means they are going to spend more time in theatre than they are in the wards. That's just how it works because we want surgeons to operate. That's what they're being trained to do. And I think things are changing that you need to get to know who's in your hospital, who are the champions, who are the people to avoid, because there are in all specialties. And actually there will be champions, people who will want to work with you, whether you're a medic, a surgeon, an anaesthetist, uh, or an allied health professional, and get to get go to meetings, go to the surgical um, uh, trauma meeting, go to the audit meetings, go and meet people on the ward, go and introduce yourself and say that you're here to help. And you, in, as you get to know people, then you start having discussions about things and people trust you then you can have you trust them and you have actually conversations which benefit patients and you learn where your skills lie and where their 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 abilities lie and i think that's how you produce a local pathway of agreement about what what a service can offer and what um, each different team is going to offer for a patient so there aren't gaps and things flow together so the pops model at guys and st thomas is, is one model and i'm sure they will tell you different ways they'd like to improve they started from scratch but actually every hospital is going to produce something differently and if you're a junior doctor or wanting to go to a ward to do some surgical liaison work i think you need to get to know the surgeons you're going to be working with and then it's fine yeah, so sort of building it from the ground upwards as opposed to assuming that you can just transplant a box from St. Guy's and St. Thomas and just plop it into every hospital around the country is probably not going to work, isn't it? Like you say, kind of knowing the characters and the personalities and building the service from, from the ground up is, is the way to go. Um, let's talk about some particular considerations that we need to think about in the uh, the medical care of uh, older, older surgical patients. Um, we had one suggestion uh, from Twitter from uh, Emily Fielding, whose Twitter name I'll try and pronounce. It was at Fez7L. I think it was F-E-7-L. Anyway, Emily, wanted us specifically to mention pain management. And Philip, you mentioned this earlier on when you were talking. Thinking again about practical tips, really. Any suggestions for junior doctors, particular considerations for pain management in older surgical patients? I think pain management always worries people because people know that um, medications like opiates can cause people to become confused and delirious. And at the same time, pain can make people confused and delirious. Absolutely. So it, it, it always causes problems. I think that the first thing to do is assess the size of your patient. If they're opiate naive, patients that come in a large amount of opiates are going to need large amounts of opiates during their operation. If someone is very small and has terrible renal failure, then you need to pick the correct opiate and you may need to speak to your local pharmacist um, in order to get advice about what the best pain relief is. I think it's, it, um, I think you need to prescribe the right amount and you need to assess each patient carefully. So it's no good just prescribing 10 milligrams of intravenous morphine PRN one hourly and writing up some naloxone next to it and just <laughs> keeping the fingers crossed for every patient. It's not going to work. But there are there are simple things that can be done. So the majority of patients will benefit from paracetamol as a base level. And of course, we need to be careful of the weight of our patients um, before prescribing one gram for everyone four times a day, um, making sure that patients have their regular analgesia prescribed and then building on that, thinking about the route. If someone's nil by mouth before their operation, it doesn't mean they can't have their tablets Clearly, those tablets are going to work in 15 to 20 minutes because they're absorbed and they can have it with a sip of water. So if they take regular uh, pain relief in the morning or regular blood pressure tablets in the morning, then they can have those before their operation. And you don't want to miss 
piss those out because clearly they'd be going to be in pain for the rest of the day while waiting for their operation. So very much look at, I would suggest looking at, for pain relief, um, what they're on already, whether they've had those kind of medications before, what their body weight and renal function is, and then considering actually what kind of route of analgesia they need later, whether that be intravenous, subcutaneous or oral. Any any other comments or uh, anything to add to that from... I think I think what Philip said is very helpful. I think one of the things that is very difficult because it seems that we work in an evidence-free zone when it comes to pain. There are studies, however, that do look at pain in post-operative management. Um, and you can even go onto, I think it's a bandolier website where you can get a number needed to treat for various different um, painkillers. And it's actually quite surprising, which is why I no longer ever prescribe codeine because it's not really a painkiller. Because if you said you had to treat 48 patients with codeine to treat one person with pain, you probably wouldn't consider it a painkiller. Uh, and of course, we as geriatricians know that codeine is not very good in the elderly, and it's certainly not very good in post-operative pain, but it still gets commonly prescribed. Um, so I think if we can try and bring an evidence-based approach to pain management is always very helpful. Um, I think what Philip said is about regular paracetamol and, and as required um, opioids is very helpful. I think the various conferences have suggested oxynorm or oromorph as a um, PRN. And then if you and you can obviously review that every day if they're needing regular ones. And it's only when you get to particular subgroups where you may need to be using alternatives. So when a vascular patient has an amputation, they may be more likely to get neuropathic pain. And that's when sort of, uh, as a junior doctor, I wouldn't recommend that they would necessarily want to start gabapentin or pregabalin, but they may want to involve the pain team mm-hmm. to con- to consider those ones. I, I, I personally wouldn't want junior doctors starting those, but... I would like them to think about what type of pain the patient's getting. Um, it could be that they've got pain because the sutures have stayed in for too long, or it could be for various reasons that they've got an infection or an abscess. So it's not just what painkillers can I give, but why have they got pain? Why have they got pain now? Uh, and what can I do to, to make it better other than give them more um, tablets? Yeah. Gonna throw I think that's right, and 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 not forgetting that, of course, you have lots of support. So the pain team are around in almost every hospital, yeah. and if there isn't a pain team, of course, there are anaesthetists around who specialise in pain management. So um, if you're interested in this, or you find it confusing, I'd suggest go and spend a couple of hours with the pain team on their ward round and get an idea, or even there may be specialist pharmacists, just get an idea of what kind of medications are being used, how patients are being assessed, and talking to patients regularly about their pain. So I'm going to employ the uh, practical license of a, of a time machine. I'm going to go back to my mindset when I was uh, an F1. And I've just heard you say very usefully some top tips, but not to use Cody. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should reach for ibuprofen or naproxen. Is there any comments anyone would like to add about that? Philip, do you want to um, I, said, I, I certainly, in our older population, I would I do try and avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. I think that um, patients have uh, been starved before for long periods. They're dehydrated. They haven't had enough intravenous fluids. They lose fluid intraoperatively and they're not eating postoperatively. And if you add in a small amount of an NSAID, I think you're going to get people into renal failure quite quickly. So I think they need to be used carefully. Um, I do prescribe codeine. I do prescribe oromorphine. I do prescribe oxycodone. Um, but I think it's that pain relief can get complicated and I think you need to learn from and discuss it with senior colleagues and specialists in order to understand what's done in your unit. So I'm not saying you shouldn't use these medications, but I think they need to use carefully in the correct patient. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just, just a note, because it's my POA tomorrow, and just in case you're on the panels listing, I don't prescribe ibuprofen and approxim to these people. <laughs> Maybe it prompts the aid some discussion. <laughs> Um, uh, the other one I think that a lot of people find challenging in a lot of medical patients, not just not necessarily uh, surgical patients, is, is uh, fluid management. So, um, fluid balance. I'm looking for the top tips, the benefit of your of your experience. I mean, uh, uh, how can our, our junior colleagues tailor their fluid prescribing rather than just sticking up uh, eight hourly bags of alternating saline and dextrose? I'm going to say too sweet, one salt. It's contraband that expression here around in surgical land. I think fluid management is so hard, but one of the things that I think is a, a benefit in surgical patients is, generally speaking, fluid balance charts are prescribed are filled out better on surgical wards than they are in medical wards. So often, you have more accurate information, uh, and they tend to have the chart filled out better for urine, NG, aspirate, or whatever drain. Uh, but even with that, I think they are very, very difficult to to do. I think anaesthetists are often very good at fluid prescription i think medical doctors are still there's a lot of areas to improve on there are good guidelines i think it's gifty stuff there's a, a abbreviation for which it helps for fluid um i don't know if people want to look up a resource i'll have to sort of link it later on to the uh, via twitter um but it's just make a good fluid balance assessment do they need fluids um or are you prescribing them because that's what you do and just remember fluid replacement is not a nutritional replacement you know five percent dextrose does not give them the calorie requirements which i think sometimes people think oh it's a bit of sugar must help um but that's not necessarily the case um and really what we try to do is encourage our patients to be eating and drinking as early as possible so um trying to not give them fluids unless they really need them and if they need them prescribe the right fluids at the right time and that's why checking the electrolytes regularly uh, and of course for surgical patients be a, be mindful of refeeding syndromes to so consider the calcium phosphate magnesium um i think i agree with all of that just one thing the proactive coming back to that i think one thing we're really bad at is potassium replacement so our response our, our approach to potassium is very much reactive we just keep giving fluids about it and then oh the potassium 3.1 we best give them some potassium back so taking a more proactive approach to potassium replacement i think mm. is probably a useful tip for juniors out there and again there's a there's a fab mini gem that we've got on the site that that's so you're not shameless I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no i'm genuinely saying this because i've watched it and it, i found it very very useful um i'm not just shamelessly plugging the site um <laughs> So yeah, no, I, I, I don't think replacement is done is done poorly. I don't think we've mentioned enhanced recovery process, mm-hmm. which happens after a lot of surgery, particularly colorectal surgery, in many hospitals, which is a way of sort of benchmarking what should be happening to patients. I think there's a lot of guidance on there about when fluids should be prescribed and when they shouldn't. So for, uh, an example might be that patients can actually drink fluids up to two hours before their operations. And often patients are starved from the night before and come in not eating and drinking for an afternoon procedure. So I think the first thing is to work out if someone really does need to have intravenous fluids or they can just eat and drink normally. Um, the second bit is actually following that process of enhanced recovery, which will appear in almost every hospital, about when patients can start eating and drinking. And that usually is early. So many surgeons have stopped the process of having a thimble full of, of fluid after an operation. Actually, it's about eating and drinking early. So mm-hmm. I think the fluid prescriptions, um, the time that people need to be in intravenous fluids is reducing using enhanced recovery procedures. And have a look at the booklet in your local hospital, which will give you some guidance. 
personally, I prescribe much more um, um, crystalloids, particularly Hartmann's, mm-hmm. and I would certainly avoid from, I've been advised by my anesthetic ITU colleagues to avoid all colloids now because there's worse outcome with renal failure. So if you're going to reach for something, I would reach for Hartmann's if you need to saline, but Hartmann's is probably the fluid you're going to reach for um, uh, perioperatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think every t- in my mind, every time you see a patient, the junior doctor who's sat over them flowing about the fluid, you should be asking the question, does that need to be there? And the way I like to look at it is anything that's sticking inside the patient or stuck to them is probably pro-deliriumogenic. So as soon as you can, take it off or take it out. That's, that's my kind of rule. There's <laughs> a good motto, I like that. <laughs> it's true, though, isn't it? If you think about it, we strap on a 15-litre mask. It's like sticking your head out the car window at 70 miles an hour. Two big venflons, one each arm. Uh, a catheter to restrain you to the to the bed of the urometer. I mean, it, you can understand how people can misinterpret that and it can drive and exacerbate delirium. So I think top tip for juniors, every, every day when you go around, try and demedicalize people as soon as it's safe to do so. Okay, let's move on then and talk about, um, I mean, now that we've, we've undoubtedly enthused our listenership about uh, POPs um, and there'll be a, an overwhelming surge in, in numbers applying to geriatric medicine and POPs in particular, um, if these people have a, a particular interest, where can they go to, to find out more about it, to get training, um, to, to become uh, surgical geriatricians themselves? There are lots of resources available. I would certainly, um, I, I mean, I, I will make sure that I will send you the links that I'm about to talk about, but I'd certainly look at the geriatric syllabus um, from the JRCPDB, which has the perioperative medicine for older people section. Um, and that actually gives you quite a lot of things to learn about, which you can in your local hospital, as well as some specific learning methods. So you may not have your own POPs team locally, but you can actually go and visit MDT, MDTs, you can visit pre-assessment clinic, you can go to national conferences. And, and there are lots of the, the POPs conference, which is every March um, in London, is certainly a recommendation. Um, it lasts for two days and it's very much an introduction from geriatricians, anaesthetists and surgeons about the kind of working we're talking about and then actually practical tips about taking models back to your own hospital. Um, I would definitely look at, if you're considering this as maybe even a career, um, there is an MSc in perioperative medicine from UCL, which is in its second year, so it's taking, it's a three-year course, um, and that is uh, certainly a multidisciplinary working, um, and is, but is currently run by anaesthetists and Royal College of Anaesthetists. Um, I know Cardiff University have also started an online surgery in the older person online course, um, which you, which I think they have just started. Um, and then there's also the Age and Anesthesia Conference, which is mainly anaesthetists, but had about 50 geriatricians this year. And the next one is in Derby next year. And you can, uh, again, we'll make sure there's links available for you to look at, which really talks about um, all, the, all the different latest methods of looking at older people in surgery and anesthesia. Um, Guys, and Thomas... There's a lot of stuff. Like it's really, really exploding, isn't it? It's really exploding. I think that's really important to remember that it's not just the geriatricians. Of course, there's the POPs website and there's the the specialist group on the BGS website as well. So the British Geriatric Society has a specialist group for POPs medicine. But also the surgeons are already doing their thing and the anaesthetists are doing theirs. So I would recommend people who are interested um, from the anaesthetic point of view to look at the Age Anesthesia Association. So if there are anaesthetists who are uh, budding geriatricians who wanted to, um, to do anaesthetics. I know this may be listened to by non-geriatricians um, that 
the Age Anesthesia Association, they're doing some really good research and they've got some very good guidelines. Uh, so the things that they've been looking at are types of anesthetics in older people, the, the reduction and use of sedation to reduce the incidence of delirium, things like that. Uh, and they've got really good guidelines available as well. If anyone, anybody geriatricians out there interested, a quick, for, there's a, an OOPT at Guy's and St. Thomas's every year as a clinical fellowship um, that a geriatric registrars can apply to to learn more about it. Uh, that's uh, out of programme training for anybody unfamiliar with the lingo. It took me ages to learn that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Were, I thought people were saying whoopsie uh, <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> there's a blog. There's a blog on the BGS website. Was that you, Philip, or was it someone else? No, it was wrote, it was Philip. Who wrote the you, wrote a, it, it, yeah, you wrote a blog, didn't you? A blog article about your experiences doing it. That's it. Look out for the BGS yeah, website. Yeah, yeah. It's we'll, a we'll, special interest group which you can join. Yeah, mm. we'll, we'll add that to the list. It's, quite, it's worth a read. That was slick, Pat. Yeah. That was slick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll put all these links in the, the show notes, which will be available on aeme.org.uk slash cotycast9. Uh, we've got journal articles. We've got BGS blogs. Um, the BGS uh, website itself has its own page of resources. Um, we'll put in some links to uh, everything we've talked about tonight and uh, perioperative medicine, MSC. Just throw, in that, throw that in there in case people are really keen. Um, but I suppose... I guess my advice uh, for, at a very junior level, if you do have a budding interest in this, is you could start simple and, and just uh, audit one of the things that we've talked about tonight and then um, submit it to one of the elderly medicine conferences and go from there. And I'm sure you'll meet the right sort of people. Or you can do a taster. Yeah. If you're thinking, oh, I like the sound of this. If you're a foundation doctor, do a taster. Find someone that you get on with, that you that sort of inspires you or encourages you and latch yourself onto them and spend a week with them watching what they do and see where that takes you excellent stuff okay I think it's probably time to wrap everything up now so what I'm going to ask each of you for is your your Coticast commandment for the night so this is a, a learning point that you want people to take away and either remember or do differently in their practice um, and I'm going to come to to James first okay mine probably relates to medication because I think we've had some really useful discussion tonight about the do's and don'ts I think it would be a call to arms to junior doctors I think so often clerking people is perceived to be a paper exercise and you do the cardex and you just mindlessly spew onto the page all the usual medications and maybe my learning my learning point for this is that your patients are in a very vulnerable period and writing a cardex should be an active process not a passive process you need to be thinking trying to anticipate potential problems like we've talked about you know are they missing their opiates have they got laxatives etc so trying to make the process of writing a cardax an active um, process rather than just a mindless regurgitation of medications without really thinking i love it okay think about the medications andrew um i think one that is not the beat on the stick but more encouragement that never think that you're on your own on the surgical ward you work in a team and therefore if you're concerned about a patient ask for help involve other people um, I think that is one of the things that we do naturally as geriatricians that is a really simple thing to take to surgical wards escalate it to other people if that requires whatever specialty it might be or it might just be escalating to a registrar or nursing staff or medical registrar but just you're never on your own and don't ever think that because you're not no I'd second that Philip, our final one for the evening. 
Um, I would probably challenge people to start talking to their departments about what's happening for the patients that we understand are not doing well on the surgical wards. So take some time to talk at your local department meetings, go to a surgical audit meeting, talk to people on the ward, get an idea of what's happening and start thinking about it, whether you're a junior doctor or a senior consultant, just getting an understanding of what's happening in your local hospital, I think will give you a good idea about service development and what's possible for older people. Yeah. yeah, we're back so, to being proactive again, aren't we? Not yeah, just about the mm-hmm. clinical care, but in terms of developing the, the service. Uh, it's really interesting to, to reflect on that, like the idea of a very junior doctor looking to go, oh, this isn't good enough, I need to act on this. And I suspect I had nowhere near the confidence when I was a junior doctor to, to do that. But I would urge junior doctors out there who are seeing stuff that they may be thinking, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that's really as good as it could be. I urge you, as, as you've said, Philip, to, to look at ways to improve it. I mean, you, there's, there's all manner of quotes these days in like the Francis report and the Kia report that talk about junior doctors being agents for change. And um, I mean, they talked about as the eyes and the ears of the NHS. And, and, and I think junior doctors have a lot of power these days and a lot of insight into how care differs between trusts. So, I really second what you've said there, Philip, and and, and be uh, I think encourage it, people to be it, agents for change. <laughs> every every FY one has to do an audit at some point, or FY two maybe make it the surgical wards that you do it on. Are there any other closing comments from anybody before we uh, before we finish? Don't forget the Parkinson's medication. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get that in there. Yeah, that's that's another. That's for, that's for another day. Too many medications. <laughs> okay, well, um, thank you all for your contributions. It's been a really good chat. Um, the last thing I want to say to everybody to, uh, listening is uh, again to remind uh, people about the survey with a with a plea to fill it out. Um, AEME.org.uk/survey uh, and a, a plug for um, our Geriatrics for Juniors conference, uh, which is returning for its third year this year. We're going to be in Leeds in November. Um, there's a, a fantastic program which will be uh, published on the website very shortly. Uh, and a poster competition, speaking of uh, audits. Um, so we're, we're looking for uh, care of the elderly champions. So any audits or uh, quality improvement projects that uh, you might have done to help improve the care of older people, we want to hear about them. Um, and you can find more information about that on our website as well. There will be prizes. With prizes, absolutely. Of course, so it's not just for honour. So um, all that remains is for me to uh, thank my guests very much. Uh, James Fisher, Andrew Dean, uh, Philip Brody. Um, gents, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, tune in next time. Thanks. Cool.